Good morning, everyone. This morning, we are commencing a new series of study from the book of Ephesians. Every year, we try to cover one book from the Bible, and we try to alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. So last year, we did the book of Exodus. This year, we want to cover a book in the New Testament, and we have selected the book of Ephesians. The Word of God is shaping our worldview each time when we study God's Word. Each Sunday when we re receive God's Word, it is helping to correct our views of this world. It is uh, shaping the way we view this world and help us to evaluate this world through the lens of the Scripture. And so we are committed to studying God's Word. And so Book of Ephesians comprises six chapters and is considered by some scholars to be the grand canyon of the New Testament, covering the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of God's plan in our salvation. Six chapters I read through many times, possibly 30 times. Um, I encourage you to read through it. It would probably take you about only 20 minutes to cover six chapters. Paul writes this this Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians is known as prison letters. He wrote four letters while sitting in prison cell in Rome. And Ephesians was the first one. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four letters. They are called the prison letters. And Ephesians is the first one. And so before we plunge into the detail of Ephesians chapter 1 to 6, what I would like to do this morning is to give you an overview of it. The more we understand the context, the content will become clearer and easier to understand why Paul writes in a certain way. So the way to navigate through this overview is I want to give you three C's. I want to walk through with you the chronology, the chronology of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which you can read through in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. Three chapters, Acts 18, 19, and 20, the chronology of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Just a quick overview of that. And the second C, I want to paint you a context, the context of uh, Ephesians. Tell you a little bit about the city, about the culture, and about the gods that they worship. And then the last C, just an overview of the content of the book of Ephesians. So chronology, context, and the content. So let me begin with the first C, chronology. And if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, those are the three chapters that we were looking at covering the chronology of the Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth. And uh, he spent there preaching in Corinth. And then he sailed to Syria with a Christian couple by the name of Aquila and his wife by the name of Priscilla on what may be called the Paul's second missionary journey. Paul did three journeys. So on his second journey, when he was returning, finally returning to Jerusalem, before that to Antioch, he passed by Ephesus only for a short while. Only for a short little while, he went with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and he 
And he, when he was in, in Ephesus, he went to synagogue for a short while, and then they asked him to stay longer, but he said, no, I have to move on, but I promise that I'll try my best to return back to Ephesus again. And so he left Aquila and Priscilla there, and he moved on to Antioch and then to Jerusalem. So we can say that Aquila and Priscilla, in some way, probably was the one that planted the church. We can say that Aquila and Priscilla, in some way, probably was the one that planted the church in Ephesus. And God sent another person while Aquila and Priscilla was in Ephesus without Paul, a guy by the name of Apollos. Apollo, according to Scripture, was a very well-learned man who knew the Scripture very well. He knew the Old Testament and he preached to the Jewish people. And but because it was a trans, you know, books of Acts is a transition time between old and new covenant, and where Jesus just departs from them, and the Holy Spirit just descend and give them the the command to go and preach the gospel to other parts of the world. So it is a transition time. So Apollo wasn't quite able to grasp that at that time. So Aquila and Priscilla took Apollo under their wings and mentor Apollo. And many people say that the book of Hebrews is a possibility that is written by Apollo. We do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, but it is highly likely it is by Apollos because it has to be written by someone who knew uh, Judaism pretty well to be able to converse and compare with the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And Apollo kind of fit into the bill. And so... While all this was so, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos were in Ephesus and Paul was away. And some time later, Paul returned back to Ephesus. And it is the single place that he stayed the longest, possibly two to three years. Between two to three years, uh, he spent in Ephesus. He entered the synagogue for three months and he was, he was just preaching to the Jewish people. And then he faced some opposition. He moved on. He he started his own little school uh, called the School of Tyrannus, where for about three years he taught and he evangelized that part of Asia. So the church through Paul, through Aquila, through Priscilla, through Apollos was established. And it has been said that after Paul left Ephesus, Timothy was the new pastor that came in possibly passed between two to three years in the city, uh, in that city. And Paul actually tried uh, to return again the third time, but he, he didn't quite want to return, but he settled down in another town called Miletus. Miletus. And there, all the elders in Ephesus go, went down there and met up with him. And you can read that in Acts chapter, I mean, Acts chapter 20, where Paul gave a very, very passionate farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, encouraged them to be a good shepherd because after this, there will be wolves coming in to attack them. And true enough, years later, now even the church uh, there has not even a Christian community currently in Turkey at that part of the world. So this is a brief chronology of where uh, Paul, how Paul did his ministry in Ephesus. Please do take time to read through 
Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, where there you will get a better picture of the movement by Paul. Let me move on to now the second C that I want to give to you, and that is the context. The context of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very large, multi-ethnic center of trade, commerce, and culture. And in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, Ephesus was exceeded in population only by Rome and Alexandria. So it's a big city. They have about a quarter of a million population there uh, and was an important seaport as well. And in addition to having a significant Jewish community there, Ephesus was home to many Greeks, Romans, and other settlers from throughout the entire Mediterranean world. And travelers and pilgrims from all over the Roman world visited Ephesus in large numbers every year. And being on a main trade route and having a key harbor added to the picture of Ephesus as a bustling, multicultural city of trade and entertainment. And it's been said that there was a medical college there was renowned doctors reside there, a large public library in Ephesus, as well as numerous shrines and statues. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. An underground sewage system. And more importantly, there was also an outdoor amphitheater with a sitting capacity of about 25,000 people. And archaeology has also... Archaeologists has also developed and, and dig and found that affluent homes in Ephesus boasted amazing opulence and split-level construction with floor space often exceeding 10,000 square feet. So all these people, it's, it's, it's a very busy port city. So when you think of Ephesus, Please don't think of Ephesus as a small, dusty town with dirty streets, you know, with few camels and donkeys that we often think about ancient city. It is not. It is not. Think of a city with bustling harbor and the pace, architecture, infrastructure of a large, commercial, cosmopolitan city that will probably get you closer to the mark of the city of Ephesus. I'll tell you a little bit more about Ephesus. It was a pluralistic culture. There are many religions there, many gods. They worship all kinds of gods. And some of us who are Asians, who live from other parts of the world, we understand that in the sense where there are many, many gods people worship. And each time they have different type of festi festival over the year. And, and Ephesus was in that sense I was a very, very pluralistic in every way. Many ethnic and cultural backgrounds were represented and religious pluralism was entrenched and embraced. Moral beliefs like religious ones were diverse and considerable moral depravity was accepted. Perhaps considerably more so than in our modern Australian culture here. The wide-ranging social acceptance was maintained in the name of tolerance and syncretism. 
And as a result of that, anyone claiming to have the right religion or the only God or the, uh, the only ultimate truth was bound to face acute rejection and social pressure and persecutions. And, and because people believe in all kinds of gods, so some people embrace Christianity as just another god, no harm. Just worship another god. Just like when I was in India as a missionary many years ago, I entered into people's home and I said, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do believe in Jesus. And so they brought me to the house and there you see the statue of Ganesh and you see the statue of, of this and that and Jesus' photo is also there. So just one of the gods of the many gods that they worship. So we can imagine that in that part of the world in Ephesus, there will be people who will be quickly embracing Christian religion as one more exciting way among many, but perhaps not become rooted in the faith in a way in which they will stick fully to the exclusive truth of the gospel or commit fully to the faith community. That is why in Acts chapter 19, in verse 11 onwards, remember the story here in verse 11 of chapter 19, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul while he was in Ephesus. And then in verse 12, verse 12 in chapter 19, it says this, that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And then in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. You see, they are, they are willing to embrace Jesus so long as you can give them more power, extra God for them to use to exercise this kind of uh, um, casting out demons in the sand. doesn't matter which God. Jesus is another God. I can just embrace him to use him as well. And verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And then in verse 15, it said, one day the evil spirit answered them. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. All this is to just tell you that people will embrace Jesus at the time as just one of the gods because they believe in many, many gods. And those who have done, uh, um, starting with me, a book of Daniel and KYB, we know that. Nebuchadnezzar, same thing. Jewish God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's your God. I have my gods. So your God, I tap on it to help me in this power. That's good. So as many gods as possible, it doesn't really matter. So that culture is that as well. And one of the main things in that city is the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. Uh, both are the same. Diana is, uh, is a, um, Roman words and, and Artema is just in Greek. So the ancient city of Ephesus was famous for having one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and that is the temple of Diana, the goddess of Artemis, Diana. And some scholars said it is because of that 
that made Ephesus glorious. She, Diana, the goddess of Diana, she was depicted in this really grotesque, weird fashion of a woman with multiple breasts because she was seen as the goddess of fertility, the goddess of all blessings. And so worshippers of Diana or Artemis form a cult of people who aggressively sought to convert people to worship their god. Diana or Artemis was attributed to have cosmic power, able to exercise her powers for the benefit of the devotee against the powers from other spirits or gods. So just one of the gods probably thinking they believe that they are more powerful. She was the goddess of the underworld, possessing authority and control over the multiplicity of demons of the dead as well as the demons of nature and everyday life. And it has been well documented that Ephesus in the first century was a magnet for the practitioners of magic. The kind of magic not by David Copperfield, you know, uh, making Statue of Liberty disappear or bending spoon. is not the kind of magic that we're talking about. The kind of magic practiced by witches, witchcraft, they cast spells, they chant incantations, use symbols embedded with power and other objects of worship. Uh, Pastor Caroline uh, uh, passed me a book <coughs> by this author called Clinton Arnott. Uh, has written a study of Ephesians, titled Ephesians, Power and Magics. And this is what this author, Clinton Arnott, said about Ephesus. He said, the epistles was written to an area famous, famed as the center for magical practices in Western Asia Minor. Presumably, many converts came into the church forsaking a background of magical practices. It is then certainly conceivable that the epistles could be concerned with addressing issues arising in the community related to the former practice of magic on the part of some of the converts. In other words, the reason Paul included, as if you, when you think of the, book, the letter of Ephesians, among other verses, other than Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved by, through faith and all that. The important chapter is chapter 6, isn't it? The most comprehensive treatment of spiritual warfare is in Ephesians chapter 6. It is, is it no wonder that Paul has to devote a chapter on spiritual warfare because of the context of Ephesians? The Ephesus, where people are into this kind of magic, this kind of uh, uh, things that is happening in that city. So it seems logical to conclude that if Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to Christians coming out of the occult, that all of the truths and themes making up the content of Ephesians should in some way relate to or be useful for doing battle with the devil and the evil spirits. Another author say this is a city in the grip of superstition. 
fear, demonism, and darkness. It was a city devoted to sex and to religion. In other words, it was the San Francisco of the Roman Empire. It was a center for witchcraft, superstition, demonism, a weird mixture of black arts, worship of demon, astrology, or cult practices of various kinds filled this city of priests, magicians, witches, warlocks, and quits of every kind. And therefore, when people go to that city, they make, some of us, we've been to some Asian country before we know, uh, they make this statue of uh, uh, goddess uh, uh, Diana for sales. When I was young, before I became a Christian, I always have this, this god, this Chinese god that I keep in my pocket. Because I have to sell newspaper, I have to deliver newspaper night time, very late. As a little boy, seven years old, I'm afraid. And so I have this God that I held very tightly, this little statue, keep in my pocket. Everywhere I go, I deliver newspaper because I'm scared. Night time. And thinking that, you know, like Dracula, you know, when you, you got devil come out, even you just show this pendant, some kind of power, light. And so this is what I was thinking too, you know, holding on to this kind of gods that has special power if I encounter any kind of uh, trouble. And so that is what happened in Ephesus. If you visit Ephesus, they'll be selling all this thing. And that is why in, in chapter 19 again, picking up from chapter 19, in verse 17, it says this, when, when that guy was uh, beaten up by the evil spirit uh, and they ran out of the house naked and bleeding, in verse 17 of chapter 19, Acts says this, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. And look at verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the, Lord, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So a lot of people would dive into all these occult things when they heard of Jesus they came out, they burned all these scrolls, they laid behind their practices and embraced the Lord. And then again, in, in, in chapter 19, further down from that, in verses 23 onwards, you will see that this guy by the name of Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He made silver shrines of Artemis. He brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And then, because people started to abandon this belief and embracing Jesus is causing nobody's buying and therefore the business is going downhill. And so what did he do? In verse 25, he said he called them together along with the workers in the related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. You trying to exaggerate here. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is 
danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of divine majesty. You see that? So all this thing is happening and this guy was concerned because they were making all these gods, goddess, in small pendant and sell away. So that is the context of the letter, that it is Paul writing to that kind of environment there. And if you further down in chapter 19, further down, when, they, when there was a riot in Ephesus, when there was a big riot in Ephesus trying to get uh, Paul into trouble, and that is precisely the chant, isn't it? Great to the goddess of Artemis. So that's the chronology, the context. Now I want to very quickly move on to the content, the content of Paul's letter to Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians is quite easy to divide it. Uh, six chapters, you can slice into two or three, depending on how you want it. You can slice it into three, uh, two. Let me just go by this view first. You can slice it into two parts, chapter 1 to 3 and chapter 4 to 6. Chapter 1 to 3 talks about the doctrine. And chapter 4 to 6 is duty. Paul usually do that. Even in the book of Romans, it's the same, the letter. For the first 11 chapters was heavily doctrinal, and then the last uh, four or five chapters is very practical. And so here, chapter 1 to 3 is on doctrine, who we are in Christ. We have to establish who we are first, our identity first. And then chapter 4 to 6 is duty, how we live in Christ. Doctrine, who we are in Christ, duty, how we live in Christ. Chapter 1 to 3, talk about belief. Chapter 4 to 6, behavior. Chapter 1 to 3, talks about principles. And 4 to 6, practices. 1 to 3, talk about our position of the Christian. And chapter 4 to 6, talk about the practice of the Christian. 1 to 3, talks about the privileges of the Christian. And 4 to 6, talks about responsibilities of the Christian. Now that you know who you are, this is how you ought to live. Now that you know who you are, this is how you ought to live. So doctrine and duty. Doctrine. Paul spent a lot of time expounding doctrines. And I lament sometimes for Christian church, we don't do that anymore. More and more pastors are businessmen rather than theologians. Doctrine. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, A Quest for Godliness, he says this. He said, doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites, but it is only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. The preacher's job is to proclaim the faith, not to provide entertainment for unbelievers. In other words, we are to feed the sheep rather than 
amuse the gods. Doctrinal preaching. Paul spent a lot of time expounding on the doctrine of who we are, who we are, our identity, as uh, Pastor Caroline highlighted earlier, our identity, who we are in Christ. Our identity should not be found in our title, a name in front of our title, our, our bank account, or our race, or anything like that, but who we are in Christ. What does the Scripture say we are? What does God say we are? And then, chapter 4 to 6, he explored the topic of duty, how we are to live in Christ. Now that you know who you are, this is how you are supposed to live. Alexandra Sosenixon uh, talks about duty. Say, nowadays, we don't talk about duty anymore. He said, it is time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. We should talk more about our duty, our obligations, rather than our rights. And Paul made his purpose clear in that. He said, now that you know who you are, now that you know that I have come, I have make salvation possible for you. It is not by work, but it's through grace. Now that you know who you are, this is how you ought to live. And he made his purpose clear. He expected that this community of faith would walk in accordance with its heavenly calling. And that is in chapter 4, verse 1 onwards. Now that you know who you are, this is what you ought to live. How? You have to walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in wisdom, walk in the Spirit, walk in harmonious relationships, walk in victory. Or you can split this part of a book, chapter 1 to 6, into three, three parts. You can touch on wealth and then walk, and then warfare. Wealth is who we are in Christ. The richest spiritual blessings that we have in chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. And then we, because of the spiritual blessing that we receive, this is how you are to walk. And then lastly, in chapter 6, a whole chapter talks about warfare because we Christians are fighting not with our naked eyes. The forces are not what we can see but we are fighting warfare, principalities, demons in the air that we cannot see with our naked eyes. And that is why spiritual battle must be waged with spiritual weapons. And spiritual weapons is in the areas of prayers. So come and join us for prayer. We want more prayer warriors to come and pray. And the church is survived by people who devote themselves to prayer. Because prayer is the engine room of the church. It is our heart that is pumping the blood throughout our body. And one of the key things, one of the key issues in the book of Ephesians that I believe, key theme in the book of Ephesians is that Paul is wanting the community, the new community to represent him on earth. This is what a Christian community should look like. 
This is what the new humanity, new society, a colony in which the Lord of history has, has established long time ago, a foretaste of the renewed unity and dignity of the human race. He wanted, now you are saved, now you've been redeemed, this is who you are. I want you to dwell together and this church is a testimony to the rest. This is a new community. This is how the Christians should live in a sense. He wants something to display. And that is why writing to the audience there, there are Jews, there are Gentiles, convert, and then it was a transition time whereby this mystery is made known now that a Jew, is started with the Jewish people, the gospel, but then now he has gone to the Gentiles, and Gentiles and Jews now have the same inheritance. That is what Paul is trying to say. This mystery has been revealed, and therefore this new community must display that. This gospel that we believe in must be able to break down all this burial. And that is why you read chapter 2. Paul says that, Remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, you are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Remember that? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has put it down by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both to them, to God, through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit." Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ, Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So here, the, the treatment of Ephesians is amazing about how a Christian church is supposed to walk. And as a church, as a community, you display that in a very concrete way to the world, what a Christian is like. Know who you are, and this is how you ought to live. And Ephesians spell out very clearly. I'm sure we are going to draw out a lot of wonderful things over the next 13 weeks as we plow through this letter of Ephesians. But in conclusion, let me just draw one simple application from the content of uh, Ephesians. You know, in this world that we are living currently, we are, gra we are grappling with racial uh, discord. No doubt about that. Um, 
I believe it is the church that must set must be set apart as an example of biblical unity. The church should be the, the ground. John Perkins was a civil rights activist and author of a book called One Blood, a parting word to the church on race, believes the church. So let me repeat again. John Perkins, civil rights and author of One Blood, a parting word to the church on race. He believes that the church is the best place for racial reconciliation that we hear so much about by politicians. So much about. They talk, constantly talk about that. Racial reconciliation. And John Perkins simply said that the church is the best place for racial reconciliation. And this is what he says. He said, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do, he said. There is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. Christianity, Christianity looks stunning to the world and most emulates Jesus when our identity and unity in the gospel are more foundational than any other identity, including our ethnicity. Our broken world needs to see this vision lived out in new and fresh ways. Where? In the church. In the church. And there's one line there that says, he said, Christianity looks stunning to the world and most emulates Jesus when you and I, our identity and our unity in the gospel are more foundational than what is external. Not because I'm Asian, therefore I'm draw closer to Asian. Not because I'm this race and therefore I'm closer to that kind of things. What he's saying is that our identity is in Christ. That is more foundational and more fundamental than any other form of identity that we may draw from. And our broken world needs to see this vision lived out in new and fresh ways in the church. And therefore, in the book of Romans, there were deep disagreements based upon culture, based upon backgrounds and preferences threatened to divide the church. They created an unwelcoming culture among members. Battle lines were drawn, tribes formed, emotions ran high. Paul called them to a bigger vision. In chapter 15, verse 5 to 7, this is what Paul says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcoming one another, living in harmony, glorifying the Father with one voice, reflecting the unity of the triune Godhead. That's the vision, a diverse and united church. And I think Ephesians is heading down the pathway of displaying, telling us, this is who you are as a believer. This is who you are in Christ. This is your identity as a believer. 
And this is how you ought to live. And together as a church, we then can display powerfully spoken words in community of what the gospel is all about. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for these beautiful, amazing six chapters that you've given to us, especially telling us who we are. Lord, in the world that we live in, there are so many worldviews in competing and trying to define who we are. But we want to go back to your word. We are children of God. We are redeemed. We are saved. And now we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And as we plow through these six chapters in the next three months, Lord, speak to us. Prepare us. Stir our hearts that it will not just uh, be stimulating intellectually in our mind, but it will move us. It will, those lessons, those knowledge, the word that we gain in our mind, it will descend slowly, slowly into our heart and shape us, mold us from within, that together as a church, we then can show to the world who we really are, corporately as a body of Christ. In this part of the world, uh, in a world that is so uh, shattered with disharmony, may the church shine for you in this climate, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that in Christ alone, and in Christ alone and alone and alone, we have hope. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you, and we ask all this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to sing the closing song in Christ alone.